I live day by day, 14 years now. Uh, war teaches you to, to, you know, not to think about uh, the future as much as the present. If you ask most of, of Syrians now, you, uh, how would you, you know, how would you like the reconstruction would be? They will be interested in the Dubai model, unfortunately. This is the Dependance podcast. We address the complex issues of our time and how they manifest themselves in our cities and urban regions. From Rotterdam, the Netherlands, we interview writers, scholars, and thought leaders. My name is Thijs Barendsen. And today I will be talking to architect and urban thinker Marwa Al-Sabouni, who works and lives in the city of Homs, Syria. More than 60% of her hometown was destroyed during the civil war. And she wrote two books about it. The Battle for Home and more recently Building for Hope, in which she explores how cities and buildings might and should be rebuilt in the aftermath of war, and also how architecture and city planning actually have played a significant role in fueling violence and civil conflict. We will discuss how the built environment was a factor leading to war, and which urban reconstruction strategies will benefit the city the most. And we will talk about life in contemporary Syria. Marwa, how are you? I'm very good, thank you, guys. How are you? I'm very good as well, thank you. And thank you so much for joining us. Today we're in our studio, Plug Studio, underneath our, our office actually in Rotterdam, uh, recording studio. Uh, you are in Syria, the city of Homs. It's um, 3 p.m. local time. Uh, and together with your, with I believe your husband, you run an architecture studio from your home. What, what did you work on this morning? Uh, well, this morning, uh, um, I'm sorry to z- disappoint, but this morning I went in, in for a ride on my horse. <laughs> so I did no architecture work. <laughs> you own a horse? Uh, yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Uh, so I didn't, uh, you know, architects are, uh, especially if you are a freelancer independently working, um, it's uh, it, it's not always a, a daily a daily job. Sometimes you have uh, um, so many things to do at once. So you stay up late and, and you work for days without any breaks. And then you have uh, um, a lighter load uh, mm. in different days. So uh, I tend to have uh, this kind of schedule where where uh, I have, you know, periods of very intense uh, workload and then uh, some, some other periods where it's, it's uh, light. And, and where did you take a ride to? Well, there is this, uh, this equestrian uh, um, club, which is a, a public club. It's, it's, um, it's opened by the government, uh, which is uh, nice to have in the city and uh, you can you can just you know rent a, a stall there for your horse and uh, that's where I went uh, and, uh, and had my my ride today. And, and where is home exactly for you? Which area in the city do you live? Uh, well the city uh, I mean I, I live very close to the center but the city is uh, after the, the you know the battling that uh, happening were happening since uh, since 2011. Uh, the city of Homs was reduced by 60%. So 60% of the city is actually destroyed. So that, uh, you know, reshaped the city into a few neighborhoods that uh, 
you know, are very close to the center and then you have neighborhoods which are completely in rubble. But then you have also the sprawls around, uh, around the city, which also thrive uh, on, in their own terms. So uh, um, it, it's, it's a very odd, uh, in, architecturally speaking, it's a very odd, uh, odd uh, place now. I can imagine we're going to talk about that that later uh, as well, of course. But I'm also curious how has the has the past year been for you? In what ways has the country and the city of Homs been impacted by the by the pandemic? By the pandemic, well, perhaps I should give like a slight introduction about uh, about my city uh, for for the audience who who doesn't know you know necessarily much about it. Um, the city of Homs is is uh, the third uh, largest city uh, in Syria. It's a central uh, province, so it stretches from from the Mediterranean shores uh, to the Iraqi borders uh, to the west, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's a city that you know is surrounded by fields and the plains for agriculture and so on. Uh, the city was uh, the first city to erupt in violence in in, in the recent uh, conflict in Syria, which you know stretched from 2011 into uh, a good part of 2016. And in in, in, the, in those years, uh, the city was mostly uh, you know uh, not a livable place. It was very dangerous to live in, and uh, it was a daily uh, risk. Uh, to, to continue to live in, and uh, my family and I were were um, from those people who didn't leave during the conflict. Uh, but afterwards, since since 2016 and now uh, till now to 2021, uh, things were gradually uh, improving in a sense. Uh, so there is no conflict anymore. There is uh, no battling. No no further destruction. But also, it turned into a place that is hugely challenged by by the spills of war. So it's it's very uh, economically uh, dire, mm. which is which is the the, the situation in, in all uh, all over the, the country. But in in Homs especially, uh, there is there are number of challenges to the economy and to the business uh, businesses uh, here in in the city, uh, and in. That is primarily the reason why uh, the pandemic, for example, was uh, was only an extra burden to to the people here. So uh, we mostly um, um, and we mostly didn't deal with the pandemic, if you, uh, if I could say, because because the pandemic was something that people couldn't, you know, uh, handle uh, as uh, as uh, let's say as in Europe, for example. We, there is no furlough scheme. For the people, there is no chance that the people could close off the businesses, which are already struggling. Um, also, there is uh, no point of social distancing and you know keeping a distance. So, in a way, it didn't exist for you in 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 in, the, in these past months. We, well, we defi- definitely uh, felt it because a uh, number of people died. Uh, not died because of the pandemic. Uh, those who, you know, were uh, having some uh, already some illnesses, and uh, because we have also a, a failing uh, health system, uh, it's uh, it's 
it's, it's up to you as an individual here. You are not supported by any scheme. Uh, so there is no public health scheme in, in the real sense. And, and there's the no vaccination hospital. strategy or anything? Of that, course. Yeah. Of course, there is no vaccination strategy. There, there has been some... Uh, the government received uh, some vaccinations, I believe from China and from Russia, but those were not uh, distributed to, to the public. And uh, already, I mean, we have established what you call uh, what you call the herd immunity. <laughs> because you know, yeah. we we experienced that. Uh, we we, we took that to the to the fullest extent. So uh, and nobody, I, I believe, nobody uh, was not exposed to to the virus uh, at this point. Everybody must have you know uh, uh, must have caught it or. Uh, you know, they developed an immunity to it in my personal, you know, experience. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a doctor in the end. Yeah. You, 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 ju you just mentioned that 60% of the city was destroyed between 2011 and approximately 2016. Yes. And you also mentioned that you and your family stayed in the city during what is called yeah. the siege of homes. You decided not, not to flee, not to leave. Um, it's, It's probably very hard for me to fully understand or comprehend what this must have been like for you, for you and your family. But but how did you how did you cope or try to cope on a daily basis with what with what must have been an extremely stressful situation? Well, I, I have to to begin by saying that the siege of Homs was uh, was implemented on only part of Homs, so on, on the old core where we call it the the old city, and uh, it's it's the ancient uh, the ancient city and it's uh, also the, the ancient core of the city. So uh, basically, the opposition troops. In the end, after you know marking the territories during years of conflict, uh, the opposition troops were uh, um, besieged in in the old city, and uh, in that sense, the city was dissected into two different territories. Uh, the one that you and I I didn't live in in the old uh, part. I I lived on what you you may call like a crossfire uh, line, so right on the boundaries between what is what is controlled by the government and what is uh, uh, you know, held by the opposition troops. So uh, technically we belong to, to the place where uh, held by the government, but also our apartment uh, or the street where we lived was the very margin where those two um, battling factions uh, exchanged fire. And uh, that made us, made, made us very, that made us very, You know, very we experienced very frightful, frightful experiences in those years. Uh, but but to answer your question, how did you cope? I think the coping mechanism mechanism that every Syrian citizen here uh, had developed is to deal with the with the challenges on a daily basis. So that's what we, my family and I did. So in the beginning, there was you know different different periods of of uh, of let's say. Uh, When, like uh, different periods of challenges and different uh, different experiences for for a period of time there was you know we were worried about um, the, the the exchange of fire and the straying bullets and and, and the snipers uh, uh, and so on so it was it was hugely risky to to go up to the street and pick up your you know groceries and we kept Uh, kept being, you know, kept put in in the apartment, and only went for 
you know, my husband would go like for uh, for two hours out to to fetch, you know, things that you know, like food and and, and so on, and so so did everybody else. And there then that was followed by a period of time where infrastructure was destroyed. So uh, we had periods of time where electricity went out for days, sometimes a week or, or so, and then the water and then the gas, uh, you know, for for heating or for cooking and so on. So there was also a very um, uh, exhausting and consuming uh, thing to deal with because uh, whatever you you, you and attended to, you know, whatever errand or or a business you wanted to do, there there was something missing always. Uh, you know, the internet would go out for months as well, and then there was the mortar period, which also I speak about in. I, I give like a, a, an account of this in, in my first book. The Battle for Home, where you know I combine this, the the architecture story with the, with the personal story, but this also can also uh, came as a, as a very uh, challenging period of time because the mortar would would come out of the blue. It could land on your roof. It could also it, it did also did landed in front of our house and in the school's courts, and many people died all over us. Uh, Mm-hmm. And around us, sorry, and uh, in that sense, it was it, it they were very difficult to deal with. But then eventually, uh, everything came, you know, to to an, an end. And uh, we live now in in a peaceful in that uh, sense, in a peaceful time. We we do, we no longer, luckily, uh, experience uh, uh, you know conflict and battles. We don't. We no longer hear. Uh, voices of you know the destruction and, and and killing but it's it's a different uh, it's a different story now because uh, now it's like i said it's an an a challenging period for the country as uh, in terms of economy and uh, you know in, in terms of the daily life for people so the amenities are still uh, very much challenged and uh, you know you come out to war very tired and, and very torn out and, and and that's where we are right now. Can you maybe s- describe how the city currently looks physically when you when you step out of your your front door and also maybe tell a little bit can you can you still vividly remember how it was how it was before? Hmm. Yes uh, well like I said I currently live in, in a neighborhood which is very close to the center so uh, when I step out of the door, it's a very pleasant sight. Uh, there is no destruction. There are plenty of uh, of trees that are planted in in, uh, in in the stripes, you know, ahead of the the apartments, uh, and the, um, there is um, a very uh, normal movement, uh, cars and, and people and shops and so on. So uh, it looks like in any any normal city, actually. But then uh, it comes surreal when you you know go down the road and you cross uh, this uh, invisible boundary that I spoke about between the center and uh, the surrounding neighborhoods, which were utterly destroyed. So you have those pancake buildings that are crumbled, uh, uh, you know, filling the skyline. And uh, when you go past those, for 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 you know the good part of the of the first 
I, I think after in, after 2014, when we came out uh, from uh, from the you know the heavy bombardment, and we went on uh, like I said, two years of uh, gradual improvement until we had no conflict. Uh, it was very difficult to to see those destroyed buildings and to see those navigate through those uh, through the images of destruction. But now uh, I can I can say that we. I can say I, I feel numb to it. I, it's, it feels uh, it feels very you know it's very now it's a new normal. So I don't notice uh, uh, very much uh, necessarily you know the destruction. It, it's uh, it became like a, a part of the part of the the surrounding the natural surrounding of the city, which is a pity really. And uh, in terms of how the city looked before. It's something that I, uh, you know, um, like I said, I described in my first book as because I make the case of uh, of making architecture and urban planning as a uh, as a, as as a trigger to mm. war, basically, exactly. and and as as a reason, uh, one of those main reasons that played a role into you know uh, making this conflict what it is uh, for us now. So the city was who. For before the war, the city was pretty much uh, a, a dead city in the sense that it was, you know, really slow uh, in 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 terms of of, uh, of uh, everything. Basically, you don't have like a culture, active cultural life. You don't have an active, uh, let's say, uh, movement in the markets. Everything is slow. It's more. It didn't make it <laughs> for me. The character of the city couldn't tell if it's a rural character or it's an urban character because it, it looks like a city but it lives like a village and uh, the village uh, had the advantage of you know growing crops and and having production whereas my city i think was you know it couldn't decide what kind of business did it uh, you know did it uh, take on uh, and in that sense i uh, i didn't like it very much i was i was always looking for for a reason to, to find out why uh, how how did this city manage to 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 you know keep going in that mode and unfortunately uh, war proved to be that you know that it, was, it wasn't it wasn't functioning at all. Hmm. You you briefly mentioned it uh, a few minutes ago that in your previous book, the Battle for Home, you suggest that architecture was a factor leading to war. Can can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? In what ways did architecture or the built environments play a role in the conflict and also in causing the conflict? Yeah. So in a conceptual, let's say, uh, in sense, uh, we've lost uh, a very uh, important uh, sense, uh, which was the sense of belonging. So uh, this is a sense that I... I felt, I felt like I said, I felt, uh, I felt, uh, a, a, you know, struggle with be- before the war because I couldn't feel that I belonged to the to a home. I I didn't understand what home uh, meant, and uh, I think after you know it, the war opened my eyes because I was questioning my built environment in that sense, uh, how it was being destroyed. Uh, the war proved to me that. Uh, this sense of belonging was was a, a, a key reason that either you know brought communities together to defend 
their city and defend their home. Whereas if it's, if, if it's no longer there, it was really easy to destroy. And, uh, and you're, say, and you're <laughs> saying that this sense of belonging was already destroyed uh, mm. before 2010. Yes. Uh, I'll tell you why in a moment. It's uh, the way that the city was planned. Like I described earlier now, it just the sprawling around the city and, and, and the way that it, it was, you know, developed into... Uh, uh, into places of segregation, basically. So you had neighborhoods which were, uh, you know, growing like a fungus around around the, what you had, like uh, an old city or a compact urban center. But then you had neighborhoods which encompassed people based on uh, religion or origin. Uh, and uh, sometimes, you know, it's it's based on uh, your place of birth, sometimes on your on, on your religious background and so on. Uh, so people were divided into classes as well. So you had poor neighborhoods uh, and you had, you know, uh, Muslim neighborhoods and Christian neighborhoods or allied neighborhoods. And, and you had all those segregation which weren't, weren't which didn't belong to what uh, to to the urban urban fabric that already existed so when you compare this uh, this reality to the old city which i do in the book extensively you see that the the old city had an uh, an interwoven uh, threads of all of those so you didn't have you know segregated uh, areas or zones uh, where uh, but you had you know people who are you know you had muslims and christians living side to side, neighbor to neighbor. You had churches and, 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 and mosques opening door to door and you had the markets leading to the resi residential areas also in a very uh, intricate and also very studied way uh, that, you know, balanced the private places and public spaces, balanced the, 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 the economic place or the marketplace with the privacy of the residential areas and so on. And in that sense, you, that, that created a, a real sense of, of neighborliness among people. And that made the communities and the societies that lived there uh, much stronger than those that de developed around the city. And also they were, you know, they were in the business of keeping that place at, as beautiful as it can be, as safe as it can be, and made the city thrive. But those uh, also, this part also had a, a, as a, a story that I detail or speak about in, in the second book. I speak about how this old, old part also was vandalized by, by the urban policies. And there has been a history that began with the, uh, with the story of colonization, basically with the French mandate. And how how the French used you know uh, the uh, urban policies and and hired an architect, uh, especially for the job of dissecting those uh, interwoven urban fabrics. And and the story unraveled from there. We picked it up as Assyrians as well. You know, we I speak about the faults of the government and, uh, and the municipalities, but also uh, the the communities and and the societies. So you also say that, I mean, sectarianism, you also mentioned it in your book, uh, Building for Hope, is often cited by Western media and analysts as the cause of, of Syria's enduring conflict and enduring conflicts in the region. Uh, 
but you say this the the the, the foundations for uh, what you just described have a far longer history. Yeah, this is true because you know uh, um, in the book also I I give examples about how how the policies of both. Uh, the, the cities and the villages, because in the book, you know, in the second book, the building for hope, uh, uh, there is a point that I focus on, and, I've, um, and during the research for the book, I found, you know, very informative for me uh, personally. You know, the modes of settlement that you know, the urban and the rural, as well as the nomadic, uh, also uh, mode, uh, were so intricately. Uh, you know, they were interwoven as well, and they depended on each other, and uh, that created a kind of like an, an if you if you will, you could call it an urban system, like an ecosystem, and uh, um, colonization um, in that sense changed different policies. For example, the endowment policies that were used in in the in the Islamic uh, uh, city. Uh, administration, which is uh, which is a, a system that I I believe hold uh, holds many keys to improving not only uh, you know the historic city but also cities around the world. Uh, the endowment system uh, basically was changed into uh, was stripped away from its power and uh, by the French, and in that sense, uh, uh, many of uh, what you know, the balance that was created by this system, I feel, I feel that it was uh, it was manipulated in, in that sense. And this yeah. this endowment system, uh, yeah. it's it's uh, I probably mispronounced it, but it's that there's an Islamic concept called wakf. I don't know how to pronounce wakf. Yes. Okay, okay, I, yeah. I I tried my best, and <laughs> it and and it means that in in uh, that's that a property or, or, or a space or a public space yeah. is is yeah. given to a public cause uh, and yes. that any other use is is prohibited. Um, exactly. The property will become, you know, it, it, when it's in doubt, it will be in doubt to God. So it's it's no longer a property of uh, of anybody, you know. It's, it's, a, it's a property that is open uh, to its charitable use. And this charitable use or function shouldn't be uh, and couldn't be, you know, uh, changed over time. So if it's an orchard, uh, it will continue to be an orchard, and uh, the crops of the orchard will be uh, distributed to the, to the people uh, in need. But also, it will be there is a portion because it's it's a very elaborate system. There is the, uh, a portion of this will you know be uh, devoted into or dedicated into uh, improving the orchard, and in that sense, all of these. Uh, uh, you know structures and monuments that you see in the Muslim city, which are uh, were hugely preserved. You will have schools and colleges and libraries and, and houses, and uh, uh, you know uh, mosques and, and and also small hospitals and so on. All of those were preserved by uh, by the advantage of the waqf system. Uh, uh, but when those changed, there were you know there. Have, you know the like I said the the the, the vandalism on on the old city or or, or, or on those old structures began and uh, were stripped away from their power to be preserved. 
And it's a very interesting system because I link that system to the what I call in the book the factory syndrome, which is based on you know the uh, creating the demand before the you know by by means of supply, mm -hmm. and which is something that is all of our cities now globally struggle with. You you have this uh, infinite uh, production mode that replaced the the uh, basically replaced. Uh, um, the, this, the, the, the natural, let's say, process of, of production in our city. And I think the endowment system was uh, kind of worked as, as, as means of breaks on, uh, on this uh, endless production uh, chain. Um, at a certain point in the book, you, you share a statistic that, uh, that surprised me. You, mm. you mentioned that, that in 2010, uh, Damascus was ranked among the most expensive cities in the world for real estate. Just yeah. behind, I believe, Moscow, Dubai and Paris. Yeah. Um, how, how was this cost and in what ways did an overheated real estate market and rising property values have, have an impact on, on what we just talked about and, uh, and on the conflict as well? Well, basically, you deprived people from their basic uh, right, which is, you know, having a place to live in. And this, uh, this absence of sense of belonging that I spoke about is hugely, hugely rely on, on finding a place to live in, finding a place to call home. And when you fight people, you know, people were fighting to, to dream of house, you know, dream of owning a house, sometimes even renting a house became so impossible to the Syrian youth uh, that, you know, the moment of explosion was, was so readily made. So you have those informal areas. 40% of Syria is informal built, informally built. If, let me explain a bit about what, what does it mean to have, you know, a, a, an informal area built. So basically informal areas are uh, neighborhoods which are uh, built illegally outside of the regulatory uh, plan of the city. There is no building code, code for those buildings. They will be jerry-built, they will be improvised by people, will have, you know, some blocks, uh, building blocks, uh, and you will have boxes. Uh, to uh, to host you in uh, uh, as a as a as a you know as a as a as a human being, but, but it's it's not human uh, to have such a place deprived of any means of uh, of uh, you know um, dignified uh, living, and people improvised those buildings uh, because they were basically where you know couldn't afford having a, uh, having a place uh, as their own because of the reason that you mentioned uh, right now and because there are uh, the social uh, housing schemes were so failing that nobody wanted to live in the, uh, and uh, in in that sense uh, those those areas were just you know living in constant fear of being de demolished because the government will turn the blind eye uh, because it, 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 she knows that it's the it's the only solution that you don't have all of those people uh, homeless. You have forty percent of uh, of the population will be homeless uh, if uh, if they didn't you know build an informal area. But then they will you know also threaten those people with evacuation and they will threaten those people with demolishing, which happened also surprisingly happened to number of areas here in Syria even during the war. So you have all those destruct you know, destructions happening along 
uh, you know, the war, and then you have destruction happening because of the so-called gentrification of or development of areas that you, you will demolish the informal areas and, and build uh, buildings for, for those, you know, who have the luxury to, to buy and, and live in. Let's talk about uh, post-conflict reconstruction a little bit as well. How would you describe current rebuilding efforts in homes and in and in other Syrian cities? Well, uh, you would get the sense from what I've been describing throughout the interview now that there is no effort to rebuild the city because or or the country because there there is no money basically, and uh, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's a place that you know. I think it's a place like a, on a, a in a survival mode. It's a place that is living like a patient who is not being plugged out the the, the machine that is pumping uh, some air and uh, some oxygen and some blood into the veins. But there is nothing happening now, mm. and uh, the reason for this is, uh, of course, primarily political because it's. Uh, um, I think the the international community is is not is not exactly agreeing on their shares from the reconstruction cake, and uh, as citizens we don't have any say in what's happening, uh, and it's a fragmented also place as well, which also something that we do not put emphasis on. But you have to imagine that a place that has been struggling with a decade of war and before that it has been, you know, pushed into war, I think uh, you forget how fragmented the, the society is and how many social illnesses we have, how, how people, you know, no longer have the will or even uh, sometimes uh, the power. Uh, to or the hope sometimes to to speak up and to think about their future and to to think about what is right for the cities. If you ask most of of Syrians now, you uh, how would you you know how would you like the reconstruction would be? They will be interested in a Dubai model. Unfortunately, they will be interested in you know investing in their property. That, that's what your so, daughter prefers as well, I heard in another yeah, interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> what a disappointment. <laughs> but I'm, what did but you I'm do wrong? My, <laughs> well, I can think of a few things. But I mean, <laughs> but I mean it's, it's, I don't blame her because it's, it's the general atmosphere. It's whatever, you know, the mainstream thinking way it's what we receive in the media and what we are sold on our screens and what also uh, you know being discussed uh, among her peers for example or even like i said uh, even among architects if you will even about um, among those you know have uh, the education and, and the awareness uh, to to think otherwise so it's it's all about the money right now and uh, this shouldn't be like this. As I, I as I, you know, it, it, I wrote a whole book about how this should shouldn't be the goal, and how dangerous it is to give in uh, such a temptation. If if you were the mayor of Homs, if you had a say in this, if you had a, what, what are the urban reconstruction strategies that you think will benefit the city the most? Well, uh, there are two uh, 
two approaches that I would would ad uh, adopt. Uh, first of all, I will work on uh, on nature. So because uh, I read a lot about the history of my city and I know how uh, the river of my city and the canal that was uh, was opened uh, was uh, were two two factors of creating the city. Uh, so, and, and I know also how this river and those canals were also uh, buried by urban policies and driven out to the city. So if you, if you walk around the city, you won't see any, any water anymore. So I will reincorporate uh, re uh, the, the natural elements. I would plant a lot of trees, which were also... Uh, also, you know, lost during the war, um, more than, uh, I think the number is 60 million trees were lost to the war, so it's a huge number. Uh, and I will create uh, places of leisure to the people. Uh, so the parks that I miss much in my city and those uh, cultural centers that I also speak about in my book, the libraries and the cultural centers that I also think uh, are great places of, of, of meeting and uh, thriving for the city, I would work on this. But I also would work on, uh, you know, establishing another thread that would connect the, the people to the city, uh, which is a dignified uh, place to live. I, I'm not speaking about uh, social housing or a big scheme, but I'm speaking about uh, a scheme of, uh, of recreating uh, the elements uh, of the Homsi architecture that was also that were also destroyed prior to the war. So the vocations uh, that, uh, like the blacksmithing uh, and and the carpentry and the masonry that used uh, the black basalt uh, for the old city in Homs, those were hugely destroyed, and they will create a lot of jobs for the people, but also they will uh, uh, provide those elements and those ca architectural character and aesthetics that we loved in our city. And what role is there for architects like yourself? Can you in your daily practice work on uh, solutions to improve current conditions? I mean, in principle, of course, but I mean, at the moment, there people are very hesitant to to to, to build, and like I said, there is short there are shortages in, in everything from building materials to to amenities and to, to everything. We have the you know many sanctions internationally uh, being uh, prohibiting having you know certain materials and certain things, and we have a currency that is sinking basically losing more than its 10th value since uh, since 2011 so it's very difficult for people it, as as a private endeavor to create much you know like a large scale change but uh, for me it's, it doesn't mean that I'm uh, you know I could you know I could not do the, the, the work that I need to do because when um, and this is this has been my my uh, my approach, you know, working on the, the little thing that I have until I have you know more choices. When I had no choice to to build or to design, I tend I resorted to writing, and I wrote about the things that I'm passionate about and, and things that I feel that I should speak about. Uh, and I continue to do so until you know I have uh, more room. To implement my ideas. And I mean, your book is called Building for Hope. 
what 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 are your hopes in a way? What what will homes look like in five or ten years time? Well, that's a very difficult question. Because, <laughs> if we uh, look in a glass bowl. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, because you see, uh, I live day by day for 10 years now. Uh, war teaches you to, to, you know, not to think about uh, the future as much as the present. And uh, I, I, that doesn't mean that I would, you know, not dream about a better place. Uh, but, but I cannot imagine uh, with, a, with a timeline, like you're saying, five or ten years, uh, having a, tr- a big transformation. I wish that I would see, you know, a clean environment, a thriving nature, and uh, and uh, thriving, like I said, local vocations. But I am, I don't know if it will happen in five or ten or twenty years. I I just pray and hope they will come very and, soon. And do do you have an do you have a perspective on, on, on visiting Europe again or, or traveling or is that at the moment not realistic for you? How do you travel, by the way? Do you, you, you Are there international flights to, to, to Damascus? Yeah, there probably are or not. No, there are. There are not. But I no. always have my horse. You always have your horse. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, can, can, you, can you cross borders with your horse? <laughs> Well, you can't cross borders with anything, I think, with the Syrian passport. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. But if we are dreaming, <laughs> if you are dreaming, yeah. yeah. If, if you write, no, I mean, uh, realistically, uh, I mean, uh, I'm quite open to you know to any invitation would be you know uh, coming to 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 my my desk. But at the moment, I think the 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 world is not quite. Uh, Opening up, it's, mm. uh, it's. I think it will take uh, a few more months before. Probably, you know, yeah. yeah. How old are your kids now? My daughter is sixteen, and my son is uh, thirteen. And do they want to stay in Syria in uh, in uh, in in homes? What are their plans? Hmm. Well, my daughter is the rebellious one, so <laughs> <laughs> she, she she wants to go to Dubai. Uh, no, not necessarily. No, she. I, I think. She, I mean, she. She constantly when she re, when she read about her answer, by the way, in the book, she said, "Well, I am a changed person now. I'm, I think differently. I. I don't think Dubai is necessarily a place uh, to to go to, or perhaps a visit, but not to live in. So uh, she's progressing, <laughs> luckily. Uh, but uh, to be frank. I think she has, you know, because as a teenager, you have this uh, generous sense of resentment uh, already mm. in your DNA. But uh, also, uh, I think with the, with the, they see the situation around them and they speak about them with their friends, uh, with, uh, with their friends. And they are, I mean, my daughter is, uh, she doesn't like it here, mm. to put it, uh, to put it uh, you know, uh, in her in her words, she doesn't see uh, uh, she doesn't see how she would fit in with you know she has ambitious uh, ambitious plans to 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 what to study and where to work and uh, how to spend her free time and so on and she she doesn't see the potential here. But my my answer to this in I which is she is definitely not happy with. But she would say I would say that you know it's your job. It's our job and your generation's job to to rebuild it. Mm-hmm. And she would say, "Well, mom, it's, it's impossible. What are you speaking about?" And, and, <laughs> and this kind of answer. My my son is more. I think he's more attached to to here. He he is now uh, working uh, as an apprentice 
to a black uh, blacksmither. Uh, and uh, it's, it's something that you know the Syrian children used to used to do, and it was something that I think was essential to 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 the thriving of the city. That you had this informal apprenticeship uh, uh, scheme, basically. That you know, if you are uh, if you are thirteen or twelve, your parents will enlist you in any. Uh, vocation uh, that you know could, could work out your hands, I would say, and uh, uh, then they would continue continue to do so until they are in college or uh, or you know graduated from college, and in that sense you would have a vocation uh, that you that uh, you know to do with your hands. But then when when you have your education that you do you do in your mind, and I think it's it's it, it build up uh, it builds up a character and. It's it's very uh, healthy for for the children and it's very good also for for the business and, and the economy because uh, when things were rough, for example, for Syrians who were you know when weren't uh, able to be employed or there were there was no enough uh, salaries for them, uh, they would work you know during the day in that job and they will go and practice their vocation in, in the evening. And uh, I think that made us, uh, as uh, as uh, as Syrians, um, I think they, they made us made made a, created a lot of talent and created a lot of uh, persistency as well. So and 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 that system is 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 still in place, as I uh, as I still understand from you. Uh, well, not in place because, <laughs> as I said, it's it's uh, it's, it's, it's your own personal parenting choice to uh, to yeah, to yeah. Uh, to entice them. Some people them. are doing. Yeah, so, some people are doing this. Luckily, so my my son is not the only person who's doing this. So I'm, I'm quite hopeful in that sense. But we, uh, we, like I said, we are also very fragmented. So you have the uh, the, the the class issue here uh, is very obvious. So people who has money, for example, now choose not to enlist people uh, their children in in such vocations, which wasn't the case before the war. You were listening to the Dependance podcast. Our editors are Sereman Diaz, Fari Tabarki, Geert Maarsen en mijzelf Thijs Barendsen. Music composition and recording and mixing is done by Plug Studio. And the graphic design is by Studio Space. The Dependance is kindly supported by the Creative Industries Fontanel and the municipality of Rotterdam. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Subscribe to our podcast. And check our website, thedependance.eu for new episodes and live events. And let us know who we should talk to next.